ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hey, Sana here. Just wanted to let you know that for the next month, we're going to be playing episodes from our archives while the show goes on hiatus because I'm off to Canada to visit family. But we've got four excellent episodes coming for you. And this first one is a fun one. So I worked at this advertising creative agency and they did this annual award ceremony where they award people for, I don't know, like funny things or silly things. (laughs) And I was sort of sitting in the audience, obviously not wanting attention, but sort of waiting for my award because I worked really hard at this job. I'd like stayed late, you know, I'd given like so much to it. And near the end of the ceremony, they finally started announcing this award, and it was for like next award, the person who person gave their life over life. to it and stayed really late, who sold their soul and like the had job. no life because they worked so much. And it was the, the Midnight, Midnight Oil, Oil award, award goes to Jessica Pan. And they thought it was this like huge compliment, and I was so offended and so hurt by it because I wanted to be noticed for creativity or my ideas or things like that. You don't want to be rewarded just for like staying late at work. It's really embarrassing. (laughs) And that was one of the things that sort of tipped me off the edge, really. This is Dubious Award winner Jessica Pan. And when this all went down, she was in her early 30s, wondering what had happened to her journalism career and feeling deeply lonely. The Midnight Oil Award was the final indignity. And it sparked a year-long quest to see if she could change a key aspect of her personality, one she felt was responsible for so many of her troubles. You see, Jessica was a lifelong introvert, actually a shintrovert. So shintrovert is a word I made up, it's not technical, (laughs) and it just stands for shy introvert. Basically, introversion is a spectrum. And, you know, there are introverts who enjoy public speaking, but they need to be alone to recharge after a party. And then there are introverts who also need to be alone to recharge, but who would be absolutely terrified to give a speech because they're also shy. And for the most part, Jessica was fine with her shintroversion until the loneliness crept in. I just sort of hit this rock bottom moment where I thought, am I using this label of introvert to say no to absolutely anything that gives me anxiety? And what would happen if I finally let go of that and just sort of did all the things that scared me? What would happen? You're listening to All in the Mind, I'm Sana Kadar. And today we've got part one of a two-parter on introversion versus extroversion. The benefits and downsides of each, how these traits can impact our mental health, and whether we can change if we want to. Next week, we'll take a deeper look at the science of personality. But today, part one, Jessica's journey. Can an introvert learn to become more extroverted? And why making friends after your 20s is so painful. Jessica's loneliness crept up on her, as her life changed in ways it inevitably does as you get older. I think it was two different things, which is that I became a freelancer and I was working from home and you just start feeling quite lonely and you sort of watch the world go by and you don't really feel a part of it if you are the kind of person I am. And also I'd reached that age where I was in my early 30s and so many of my friends had like left the city and were having kids or had returned home, or they were just, I just felt like I didn't have any close friends left where I was in this big, massive city of London. 
And it feels quite lonely when you're in this really big bustling city and you don't actually feel like you have that many connections. And being shy does not help when you're in that kind of situation. But this is who Jessica was. This is who she'd always been. I was really shy kid, hated, you know, my mom would throw me these big birthday parties and she never understood why I absolutely hated them. And I didn't know how to explain to her she was this massive extrovert that I didn't like, you know, all this attention. Mm. Um, I hated giving speeches at school and presentations. I would fake sick. I, I really, yeah, always my whole life. Yeah, right. And so as you got older, how did this manifest in your life? Like what would you do or not do in social situations? I just would never go networking. The idea of walking into a room full of strangers and talking <laughs> to them terrified me. Um, at work, I would never want to give a presentation or volunteer for these things. I felt like I was giving myself my own glass ceiling. Yeah, so I felt like it was something I lived with, but then sort of reached this this pinnacle of, <laughs> of I guess, lowness about where sort of the book begins. That book is her first, called Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come, An Introvert's Year of Living Dangerously. But we need to clear one thing up first. There is nothing wrong with introversion, and introverts don't need to change. Jessica only reached the point of wanting to change when she became unhappy with her introversion. For others, introversion continues to suit them just fine. The short definition is, like, if two people go to a party and one leaves feeling really recharged and energized and one leaves feeling kind of exhausted, the one who is exhausted is the introvert. And so, by definition, sort of introverts, they relish solitude, they don't like small talk, they love one-on-one conversations. In general, they avoid public speaking, although, like, definitely there are introverts who enjoy it and love it. They seem to be more sensitive. They're really good at concentrating on tasks really well. You might remember there was also a popular TED Talk from about a decade ago by writer Susan Cain that laid out the many advantages of introversion. It's called The Power of Introverts. Even though introverts actually get better grades and are more knowledgeable, according to to research. (laughs) I was aware of Susan Cain's book, Quiet, which I, like, quote a lot in the book. But Susan Cain was a shy introvert. She hates giving speeches. And she knew that she had to put herself on stage, do that TED Talk. If she wanted to put this message out to millions of people, she had to challenge herself as well. And I really wanted to just sort of see someone else do all of these scary things. And I actually literally was looking for that book and was like, oh my God, that book doesn't exist. Like, that's so weird to me. And so that's kind of a small reason why I wanted to do this as well. So the very first scary experiment that Jessica threw herself into was actually one of her nightmares, talking to strangers, or trying to anyways. To help her get started, she consulted with clinical psychologist Professor Stefan Hoffman from Boston University. So Stefan Hoffman helps people get over their anxiety, and his research found that the best way to do this is through exposure therapy. So if one of his patients had social anxiety, he would advise them to go out on the street and start singing in public Mm. or to spill coffee all over themselves in public again and again or to ask people on the train for $400. (laughs) You know, your basic nightmares where you (laughs) are almost guaranteed to be totally rejected. And the point of this is to realize that you've done your worst fear and people have probably judged you, but you survived. You know, you didn't get fired. Your partner didn't leave you. No one arrested you. And it's this idea to sort of build up your confidence so that you know that you can live through these super embarrassing things. So what was the super embarrassing thing you went off and did in public? So he decided that since I hate talking to strangers, it's one of my biggest fears, (laughs) 
that I should humiliate myself in front of strangers on purpose at like the most embarrassing place, which we deemed would be the London Underground. (laughs) And so he said, why don't you ask people the question, excuse me, I forgot, is there a Queen of England? And if so, what is her name? (laughs) That's really embarrassing to have to ask. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like even a normal, not like I'm abnormal, but even like a not shy person would would balk at that. Yeah, Um, yeah, hands down. And and I didn't want to do it, but then I just thought, why, why not? Like I wanted to do everything. And so, yeah, I hailed down like a person in the tube and I just said, excuse me, I forgot, is there a Queen of England? And if so, what's her name? <laughs> and this man told me that her name was Victoria. <laughs> and I remember like my friend saying, no matter what you do in this situation, when you, before you ask the question, you can't predict what's going to happen. And that was so right because I never thought that would happen. I thought yeah. someone would laugh at me or yell at me or something. I never thought that they would say it was Victoria. Yeah. So that was the experiment. I had to do that to like 15 people. It was very nerve wracking. I'm like actually starting to sweat thinking about it again. (laughs) Did you have any positive encounters with that? I mean, yeah, nobody was mean to me. Okay. People sort of looked at you a bit strange and some women were just like, it's Elizabeth. And like, you know, they were, they were kind. I think that we overestimate how judgmental people will be and underestimate how kind people will be. So step one was a success. She'd made contact with strangers, even if it was under really weird circumstances. The next challenge was to actually connect with strangers. For this, she spoke to behavioral scientist, Professor Nicholas Epley from the Chicago Booth School of Business. Well, he sort of told me about how Well, he told me about this concept called deep talk versus surface talk. And so, you know, surface talk is like what you had for dinner and the weather and how you get to work and all these really basic things and how deep talk is more about your fears and your desires and your wishes and how a lot of people can spend almost their entire life in surface talk and how that's just not meaningful and that's not how you make true connections with people. And I'm sure we all have moments like this or friends like this where you just sort of get stuck talking about the most boring things. Mm. And he said that if you want to go into deep talk and you don't know how, you have to be the person to make the first move. Right. And so he said this motto, which I absolutely loved, which is nobody waves, but everybody waves back and how you have to make the first move. And then, and it's, it just totally works. Like if you, if you do wave to someone, even if they think you're being very strange, they will wave back. And, you know, if you say hi to someone, they'll say hi back. But there's this massive barrier between the first person to say that hello, to, to make that wave that I found so hard to cross. Professor Nicholas Epley's research has looked extensively into the expectations and assumptions we all make about what other people are thinking about us. In a recent series of experiments published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, he and his colleagues had hundreds of strangers engage in conversations, some deep, some shallow. In the deep conversations, people had to reveal intimate information about their thoughts, feelings or experiences. The researchers found people consistently overestimated how awkward the deep conversations would be, and they also assumed their conversation partner wouldn't really care about the intimate information they'd be revealing, given they were just a stranger. But in fact, participants reported feeling more connected to the people they had deep conversations with than those they had shallow conversations with. They also felt happier for having had those conversations. 
It's these kinds of misunderstandings about what will make for an awkward versus pleasant interaction that can keep us circling in shallow, conversational waters. Yeah, so what did you do? How, how did you go about trying to have deeper conversations with people? Well, I also took this class in London called How to Be Sociable, which sort of talked about the same concepts. And throughout the class, you're paired with a different stranger. And you don't know each other's names or anything about yourselves, but you have to play this thing called vulnerability tennis. And the whole concept is that one of you says something embarrassing about yourself or, or shares a vulnerability, and the other person doesn't respond to that. They share their own insecurity. And you sort of bat these insecurities back and forth. And it's to show that we actually have a lot in common. It's not so scary to share these things. You won't be so badly judged by them. And it's the most freeing thing to say these things to a total stranger. So yeah, I was paired with this man who just seemed confident and he was in his late 20s. And I didn't even know why he was there because he seemed like he would be sociable. But he wanted to make new friends. And he didn't know how. He was insecure about how much money he made and that he made less than his wife. Like we sort of share these things that you would never admit to other people or even your friends or your family. And I felt like we left with this like mm. amazing connection. But then again, because we had shared these things in this sacred space, we couldn't actually go on to be friends because it was just too weird. But I, I did from then on like, take that lesson with me in life mm. to sort of, you know, when you're stuck in this wheel of just weather and what you're going to eat and what your recipe is for food, you can just finally be like, what did you feel about when that thing happened to you? Or like, do you ever mm. think this? And I think people generally really appreciate being asked these questions and finally going deeper. Okay, nice. All right. So as part of your, you know, year of being extroverted, you then started to try to make new friends as opposed to just making contact with strangers and never seeing them again. Um, and, and trying to make friends as you get older gets harder, doesn't it? Like, it's just not mm -hmm. as easy in your 30s as it is in your early 20s. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think the studies say that we have like the most friends we'll ever have at 29 and then it sort of drops off a cliff and other <laughs> studies say it happens at 25 and I think it's because we're not at university anymore usually. We're not at these new jobs where we're all starting new. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is hard. And I think people also really struggle with the idea of trying to specifically go out and seek new friendships. You know, you know it makes people feel maybe a bit icky or loserish or, or you know, something like that. Did you... Did you struggle with that at all, trying to, like, you know, make a really concerted effort to make new friends? I do find that people people find the concept of saying out loud, I want new friends, really embarrassing. Mm. And because when you say that, people hear, I have no friends, and that's yeah. not true. Like, I have lots of friends. They live all over the world. Like, you know, I lived in Beijing. I lived in Australia. I'm from the States. I live in London now. So, like, a lot of my best friends are totally very far away, but you obviously want to make friends in your city, people you can, you know, grab coffee with and, and get to know. Yeah. And I think that it is hard to convince people about this, but I also think that most people are very open to making a new friend if, if that's presented to them. Yeah. And one of the things I learned about this is if you like, I don't know if there's a new person at work or someone you see around, or I don't know if you're, if you're like a mom at the school gates and there's like another mom there that you like, why don't you just make the first move? <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing is, is sort of that nobody waves, everybody waves back concept yeah. back again. Like, so throughout the book, I interviewed these mentors. I interviewed this friendship mentor and she said her biggest advice was make the first move and make the second move. Ooh. People are busy. People are hesitant. Not everybody's done all this research that I've done <laughs> and think about these things. And, you know, really 
put yourself out there. And I think that, you know, the worst thing that happens is they say no, or they don't want Mm -hmm. to, and then that's fine. And you can go on knowing that and you can move on to like a different friend who you'll like more Mm -hmm. and who'll like you back. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. I, you know, I've gotten the sense that like, you know, make the first move is what you got to do. But the second move, that's so important because that's really where it can go either direction. Right. And it takes so much guts to actually do that. Like a lot of bravery. I mean, it's, it's what I, I think struggle with when it comes to making friends. I'm, terrified of making the first move or the second move. But if someone does it with me, I'm like, yeah, I'm here for it. It's great. Like, how did you, you know, being such a shy introvert, how did you psych yourself up and like get brave to be able to do this? That's a really good question. It was really, really hard. But I think because I'd interviewed so many people and I'd done the research, I know it works. Mm. I know that if you talk to a stranger, it's usually actually something that gives you a dopamine hit and makes you happy. If you reach out to people, you make new friends, like that obviously contributes to our happiness. And I just thought, I don't really have anything to lose because I'd also humiliated myself through Stefan Hoffman's experiment. And so I knew (laughs) that after doing that, after asking people in London who the queen was, I knew that there was nothing that would ever be as embarrassing as that. And that actually helped me, you know, ask someone I kind of knew if they wanted to grab a coffee because normally, like typically they're actually really happy you asked and like really relieved you asked because I feel like... I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I feel like here in England, people are a bit closed off. They mm. they don't want to make that move compared to, say, you know, maybe a chat like the States or something. Yeah, no, Australia, yeah, it can be... I, I found it difficult for a long time to make friends here. I've been here a while now, so it's been okay. But I, I recently had someone who made that first move to initiate like a girl date. And I was, I was very appreciative. It was great. I was like, thank you for having the guts that I didn't. <laughs> but anyways, getting back to your story. So in an effort to start making friends, you downloaded a friend dating app, which I didn't even know existed, um, like a Tinder-like thing for friends. So what was that like? How did that go? So I'm married, so I'd never done the dating app thing. But basically, Bumble has a feature for friends called Bumble BFF. And it's basically the same sort of concept. You swipe through, you see photos of people, you can see their hobbies and yeah you just sort of match with them and then you start chatting and I met like tons of different women for comedy shows or drink or coffee or a pub quiz and I think just like with online dating it's a little bit awkward sometimes sometimes you don't have the spark but also sometimes it's it's fine and you and you make a friend and I feel like it was just a great experiment actually to see what different kinds of people were out there and yeah I actually really loved it and totally recommend doing it. Yeah, tell me about the awkward parts though. Like you can have <laughs> many dates that are duds. Were there girl dates that were duds? Yeah, I th- well I think like there were a few of those where maybe the person I'd matched with was really stuck in surface talk for ages. But if you don't even know a person, then surface talk is like 10 times as boring if you don't even know them. Um, (laughs) And that that was quite hard. Or it should be said that like with friendship, you also need a spark. It's not just like in romantic relationships. Like you also need to like have some sort of thing in common or you need to enjoy each other's company. And I think that that can be a little bit tricky to find, but I think much easier than with romantic relationships. For all her app-based efforts, the closest friend Jessica actually made during this time was someone in her own building. But going on the dates and doing the communication tasks all gave her the confidence to broach that conversation IRL in real life. So in the building I live in London, there's several flats in it and nobody ever talks mm-hmm. to each other. Surprise, surprise. People totally avoid each other, hardly even say hi if you <laughs> see each other in the hallway. And I'd come back from a run and was standing in front of the building and this woman popped out to like take her trash out and 
And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like here loitering, like I live here. And she was like, oh, I, I know you live here, like, <laughs> like I've seen you around. And then she was about to, you know, go back into her, her own life. And I was just like, hey, should we like exchange numbers in case there's an emergency or like there's a fire or something, mm. which I feel like is not the coolest thing to say, but also very useful um, because there is an emergency. Yeah. And, and she was like, yeah, let's do that. That small effort led to some texts, which led to a dinner, which led to a full-on friendship. To think, just a year earlier, this would have never happened. I would have just like walked away and pretended like I didn't even see her. <laughs> I would have crossed the street as soon as I saw the door open, definitely. Right. And I think that's been the biggest takeaway from this whole year is finally putting myself out there, actually making a close friend. And yeah, it's been really great, actually. I think she's one of my best friends. You're listening to All in the Mind, I'm Sana Kadar. Today, an introvert's quest to become more extroverted. But let's zoom out of Jessica's story for just a moment and find out how many introverts versus extroverts are there. Is one of these traits more common than the other? So basically, when we're looking at measuring human personality, the, the, the dominant model is pretty much known as the big five or the five-factor model. Dr. Andrew Spark is a personality scientist at the Queensland University of Technology. And the big five he's talking about include traits like conscientiousness, extroversion, and neuroticism. We all have some variation of these traits. We just differ in terms of which ones are stronger or weaker. And generally speaking, they're pretty much normally distributed, which pretty much means that, you know, as far as extroversion is concerned, most people are somewhere in the middle and are probably better described as actually as ambiverts. If sometimes I get really, uh, you know, I get people that really want to push me on, a, on an answer on this question, which is fair enough. And I would say, look, we would probably find that around, say, 15% of the population, 15 to 20% of the population probably really stand out as being truly extroverted. You know, these people are really talkative, they're energetic, they're assertive, they're, they love social interaction. And then equally down the other end of the continuum, you've probably got roughly an equal number of introverts who are very clearly, you know, much more shy, they're reserved um, and that sort of thing. And they, they tend to blend more into the background by, by choice. We're going to hear a lot more from Dr. Andrew Spark next week when we dive into the neuroscience and psychology of introversion versus extroversion. We'll also talk about whether there's any gender differences in these traits. In our own attempts to connect with more people, journalist and self-described shy introvert Jessica Pan observed a big difference between how men do it versus women. Okay, so you've talked about, like, you know, putting yourself out there and, and making friends. And, you know, if you just do that, you can make some really wonderful relationships. But um, you have a really interesting chapter in the book where you discuss both loneliness and conversations with men in quite a lot of depth. And, and uh, you know, I, just sort of anecdotally or in my own experiences, I get the sense that men have a harder time connecting like this. And I think you observed that as well. What did you discover when you tried to have deeper conversations with men? I think, I mean, you're right. Like, so studies say that women are just naturally much, much better at this, at like emotionally connecting over things. And I don't know why, because I'm not myself a psychologist. I assume it's something to do with, you know, masculinity and, yeah. and, and not wanting to be seen a certain way. And also men, <laughs> I don't want to stereotype, but a lot of men. <laughs> so basically, I live in England. The Premier League is a massive thing. So many men are football fans compared yeah. to women. I feel like when I would go out with my husband and his friends, they would just spend an hour talking about football. Or he'd go out with his friends, his best friends, spend two or three hours out. He'd come back and I'd be like, 
oh, is so-and-so, like, is he getting married soon? Or aren't they trying for kids? Or didn't he start a new job? Aren't they moving? Like, isn't his dad sick or something? And mm. he was like, I have no idea. Wow. Like, my husband was like, I don't know. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. We literally only talked about football. <laughs> And I think that does serve its purpose where it allows men to go out and socialize without feeling this pressure of mm. being examined. Yeah. But I also think there are huge limitations to that where they don't feel close. They don't have anyone to vent to except for their partners, really. And I think it's it's just so much more useful to, to vent to someone who would really understand your perspective. And so when you did try to have deeper conversations with men, how did that go? I mean, I think with everything I did in this book, it's important to say that like I didn't you know, talk to strangers who were scary or in a, I didn't talk to anyone in like a dark alley mm -hmm. at night. I picked the right people, <laughs> you know, like you want to feel comfortable and I don't want them to feel uncomfortable. But yeah, so I picked like friends, like people I kind of knew well to sort of try to ask more about their life instead of football. And I feel like it went pretty well. Like they opened up because they were sort of pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I asked one of my friends, he'd sort of traveled by himself for a year. And I was like, if I traveled by myself for a year, I would have been really lonely. And he was like, I was really lonely. Like he admitted that, you know, where normally you hear like about the amazing things someone did, but you don't ever hear about something like that. By the end of her year-long journey into extroversion, Jessica had learned to talk to strangers, learned to connect more deeply with others, and made a close friend. She'd also tried her hand at improv and stand-up comedy. But the culmination of her efforts was to host a dinner party, something that had long been at the top of her list of nightmare activities. To me, a dinner party is the epitome of so many fears. It's like, okay, so you're hosting, you're bringing together different people, and you're responsible for the fun they're having, and you also have to cook for them, and you have to feed them. And if it's a bad party, it's your fault. Um, and also, you can be judged by your home, your hosting skills, and you don't have like an exit strategy. You know, normally no. if you're like psyching yourself up to go to a networking event or a party, you're like, okay, but if I talk to two people, I can leave. You're in your own home, you cannot leave, um, or it's very frowned upon to, to leave. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I also thought, like, I wanted to be the kind of person who could, you know, put on a spread and have, like, different people from different parts of my life come over. You know, I invited people from my comedy class and people from the friend dating app and people from improv, people I'd met along the whole year to come to my house. Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of awkwardness, but it sounds like it mostly went well. Can you sort of describe how it went? Well, I feel like you do feel responsibility as a host to, like, paper over awkward silences. Because you know everything about everyone. And so if one of your friends says something to another friend and you know that friend feels very strongly about this issue or has experience with it, you want to jump in and be like, oh, well, David actually like worked there for 20 years. And so I felt like I awkwardly was doing that. Right. And also I'm not a great chef. The food was pretty average, I would say. <laughs> but yeah, I think that it was. it's great to just sort of see everyone else's conversations take off and like people then take control. And it's great to see them making their own connections in your home. Yeah, how did it feel to pull that off at the end, you know, one of your big nightmares and, and have it go mostly well? Well, I do want to stress that, like, because I'm still an introvert, I was, like, absolutely wrecked afterwards. I was so exhausted <laughs> because you have to be fully on. But it actually felt really satisfying. Okay, after this year of, you know, living like an extrovert, that's sort of wrapped up now. What have you taken from that experience? What skills and how have you changed since trying all of this? Well, I feel like if I started the year as a shy introvert, a shintrovert, um, I've gotten over my fear of talking to strangers like completely. And I would say I'm more of like 
a gregarious introvert, which is like Grinchrovert. <laughs> so during lockdown in London, our local cafe is like the only place near us that stayed open. And, you know, I'd go in there every day with a mask on and it was like my only human interaction. But I would like have the most amazing banter with these baristas and it was like the best feeling. And, you know, previously mm. I would never talk to the baristas. I'd always feel way too shy to do that. So I feel like that's completely changed. Like, I don't feel scared to talk to strangers now. And it's like, I actually can't believe I'm saying that. And are you happier now uh, that you've made this change? Like, how do you feel about your life now as a grintrovert rather than a shintrovert? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I think there's research that says that, you know, by the time we're 30, our personalities are pretty fully formed. But then there's other research that says, like, it's not just nature and nurture. You can also change by what you do. So... You know, your personality can change as a result of action. So, like, if you think about it, if you went and trained and climbed Mount Everest, you would be completely changed by that experience. If you did a year like my year, you would also be changed. And so I find that really freeing and comforting, knowing that you don't always have to be bound to the person you've been your entire life. That's Jessica Penn, journalist and author of Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come. Next week, we're going to get into the science of personality whether the brains of introverts and extroverts are different, and how we develop these traits. That's in part two of our two-parter on introversion versus extroversion. This episode was produced by James Bullen. Our sound engineer was Isabella Tropiano. I'm Sana Kajar. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.